So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 8, we're going to go all the way from verse 1 of chapter 8 through verse 8 of chapter 9, all right? We've got a lot of ground to cover. And today, what we're going to look at is the authority of Jesus, right? Over the last few weeks, we have heard his authority uh, by listening to the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard his authoritative teachings. Today, though, we're going to see his authority through healing, through calming of storms, and more. We're going to see that both the words of Christ and the person of Christ have incredible authority. He has the power and the might to perform miraculous signs. So we believe that Jesus, as the Son of God, is omnipotent. He is able to do anything that he wants to do. But he also has the authority or the right to do these things as well. So it's not only that Jesus has the might to do things that are miraculous, he has the right to do them as well. He has all authority, and we're going to see that today. We have a lot to cover, so I hope you have your Bibles open and maybe something to take notes with. We're going to read the first four verses, all right? Also, fun fact, just spoiler, I have seven points this morning, so buckle up. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So just quick pause. I know this is going to take forever if I do this. But Sermon on the Mount has just been completed. He's now coming down from the mountain after teaching the Sermon on the Mount. All right. Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we're thankful for uh, the gift of your word. We get to gather together as your people, open up the Bible and hear you speak. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would conform us into the image of Jesus as we read and behold you in your word, your power, your authority, your kindness, your glory, the good news of the gospel that saves sinners just like us. As we uh, believe these things more strongly and, and are convinced of these things more clearly and love these things more deeply, would you change us? change our hearts, change our minds, change the way we live our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, number one, we're going to see the kinds of ways that Jesus has authority. Number one is this, Jesus has authority up close. He has authority up close. So in this text, a leper comes to Jesus, someone who has some kind of a skin disease, who would be ritually unclean among the people of Israel, Someone who, if they were out in public, would have to yell out, unclean, 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 so that other people would avoid them in case they were to get touched by him and would render themselves unclean. And so this leper, through the midst of the great crowds that we read in verse 1, comes before Jesus and kneels before him. This would have been a shocking event to everyone involved. Some undesirable person kneeling before Jesus, this massively popular teacher, and has the audacity to ask him to do something. And not just asking him to do anything. He's asking him to make him clean. Now, 
The law was given, and there are stipulations on how someone who is unclean could be made ritually clean. The problem is, for a leper, you are permanently unclean. The skin diseases that that would comprise the idea of leprosy are permanent. You would be forever outside of the camp, in a sense. So why is it? Why is it that this leper would come to Jesus? Well, we see in Jesus' response some things that are very telling for us. First, Jesus was not afraid to become unclean, right? Jesus touched him. We we read that story. We read the text that says he reached out his hand and touched him. The stains of uncleanness do not threaten the Lord. And we need to remember that when we find ourselves in sin. So this is just a little side note, a little bit to do with authority, but a massive thing to do with you as you walk with Jesus When you find yourself in sin, you need to remember and trust with the utmost confidence. Unlike most of the people in the world and most of the people around you, Jesus will never be repelled by your sin. It's an invitation for you to come near to him. He's not afraid to become unclean. You're not going to make him dirty. Second, we see that Jesus is generous. He didn't have to cleanse this leper, right? He has no obligation to to bring healing to an unclean person. But he does. And he he does it in a specific way. He could have spoken a word, right? And said, you're healed. But he touches the leper. It's a fair guess to say that this man had not been touched by another human in a long, long time. Now, I don't know about you, but I enjoy receiving affection, right? I love when my son runs very awkwardly towards the door when I come home at the end of the day to be wrapped up by me, right? I enjoy receiving uh, a hug and a kiss from my wife. I enjoy receiving the embrace of dear friends. This leper is not familiar with those things because no one touches him except for Jesus. Jesus Touch this man. What a kind way to exercise his authority over sickness and uncleanness right here up close in an intimate way with this leper. Third, Jesus' authority was backed up with power, right? He didn't just have the the desire to make this man clean. He had the power to make him clean. This man was immediately cleansed. Jesus touches the unclean and makes them clean. He has authority up close. But Jesus' authority isn't bound to what he can touch, right? So let's keep reading. Look with me in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus does not just have authority up close. Number two, Jesus has authority far away. Jesus has authority far away. In this story, we meet a Roman centurion, a soldier in the army of Caesar with some rank, right? A centurion was a a leader of many soldiers, and yet he calls Jesus kurios, Lord. There would be a phrase over and over for Roman soldiers to say. They would say, Caesar kurios. Caesar is Lord. But here in this story, the centurion comes to Jesus and calls him his Lord. He too asks for Jesus to bring healing, but not to him. This time it's to someone far away. And Jesus offers to go to him, but the soldier stops him and says, no, 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 no. You don't have to move a muscle. Because I understand what it's like to be under authority. I understand what it's like for someone with authority to make a proclamation and things happen. I too am able to say to people, go or come or do this. And just with a word, it happens. This centurion knows what authority does in his context and recognizes that Jesus's authority is on another level. And what's Jesus's response? It says, he marveled at him. The Israelites did not have this kind of faith, Jesus said. And here, Jesus gives all of us, as Gentiles, a wonderful preview of the future. Many from the east and the west, Jesus says, will come into the kingdom. That's good news for me and you because we are not sons and daughters of the promise. We are not Jews by birth, at least as far as I know. I'm not. We're Gentiles. And the good news of this text is the authority of Jesus stretches far beyond the kingdom of Israel there in the Middle East. But Jesus also says that the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the point there. Being a son of Abraham by birth, as we've heard before, is insufficient to get you into the kingdom You must have faith. It's what Jesus says to the centurion. Let it be done according to what you have believed. So how do we apply that to our own lives? Well, our parents may not be Jews. They may not be sons of Abraham by birth, but they are probably sons of Abraham by faith. And the the challenge for you and me and the warning for you and me is we do not ride into heaven on the coattails of someone else's faith. Your heritage is not sufficient to bring you into the kingdom. Other people can't believe for you. And the the wonderful blessing of being raised in a Christian home is that you are regularly inundated with the good news of the gospel. But one of the dangers of being raised in a Christian home is that you just kind of ride it out and say, well, this is what my family believes. I don't really care so much, but this is what we do. And your faith never becomes your own. Now, how do I know that? Because statistics play this out. The majority of teenagers, when they graduate from high school and leave their mother and father's home and go off to college or go off to job, the majority of them never go back to church. Why is that? Is it because their senior year of high school, they always meet that one guy that just convinces them that Christianity isn't real? 
Is it because when they're freshmen in college, they get inundated with that one professor who just totally deconstructs their faith in a week? Perhaps. But I think the more common reason is that they are moving out from their parents' faith and realize that they have no faith of their own. Jesus' authority goes out far, but it goes out far to those who believe. You must have faith. As we see in this text, faith in Jesus as Lord is what connects us to his goodness and his blessing. So when we, as the people of God, pray for those who are far away from us, for people groups who have not heard the gospel, for missionaries working in difficult places, for churches who experience persecution, we can be confident because of this passage that Jesus' authority over there is just as real as his authority right here. He is able and he is working. So he has authority up close. He has authority far away. Let's keep reading verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So number three, not just up close, not just far away. Number three, Jesus has authority in abundance. In abundance. His authority doesn't run out. He doesn't grow tired of exercising his authority. No, Peter's mother is bedridden with fever and Jesus heals her, right? And her response is telling. Up to this point, we have not seen the response of someone who has been healed by Jesus, right? It just ends. They get healed and the story ends and it goes off to the next story. But in this, in this text, we see the response. And interestingly, Peter's mother-in-law is the first person in Matthew's gospel described as someone who serves Jesus, a servant of Jesus. This is the activity of a disciple, one who experiences the power and authority of Christ in their own lives and then responds in faithful service. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Look at Peter's mother-in-law. You've experienced life from Christ. And the natural outflowing of this new life in Christ is service to him, following him, ministering on his behalf. But the next two verses show Jesus as going above and beyond. He healed all those who were sick. He's casting out spirits with a word. So remember this, when we think about Jesus's authority for us, we remember it is Jesus's default setting so to speak, to bless. It is his default desire to minister, to heal, and to serve. Here is an authority that is used not to oppress and destroy others, which is what we often see in our day when we think about people with authority, unbridled power. They use it to destroy and to oppress others like a tyrant. That's not what we see with Jesus. Jesus uses his authority for the good of others. He uses his authority in abundance. And notice this point. Jesus' abundant authority is for your good. It's for your good. He isn't some cosmic rule giver who's ready to smash you every time you slip up. 
That is a poor view of the authority of Jesus. No, he is ready to heal, ready to bless, and ready to serve. And we see that by this little pointer that Matthew gives us there in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This comes from Isaiah 53. That's the chapter on the suffering servant. This God-fearing, suffering servant who would ultimately die for his people and not just take away their illnesses, not just take away their diseases. He would take away their sins. We could spend so much time there on the connection to Isaiah, but we have to keep moving. All right, so Jesus has authority in abundance, but let's keep reading. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. All right, so there's a shift happening here, right? Up to this point, we've seen three instances of Jesus bringing healing to someone or to a group of people. But now Jesus is recognizing, I need to go somewhere else. I need to go on this boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee as this crowd is starting to press in on him. And there are two people who are asking him to follow him, asking Jesus if they can follow him, but with caveats and with catches. So number four, we see that Jesus has authority over human traditions. Jesus has authority over human traditions. These would-be disciples come to Jesus making certain commitments. The first, a scribe, someone who understands the law, offers to go wherever Jesus was going. But Jesus called on him to count the cost. The Son of Man was without much in this life. He didn't even have a place to call home. And so Jesus is asking the scribe, are you sure you want to commit to that kind of hardship? Are you sure you want to commit to that kind of loss? Are you sure you want to commit to that kind of lowliness in the world? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were seen as people of renown in their culture. People who have have made it in that culture. And to follow Jesus would require giving some of that up, perhaps all of it up. So in our own context, the question could be put like this. Teenager, scribe, someone who's familiar with the law, someone who's familiar with God's word, but is also in a culture full of opulence, full of wealth, full of opportunity, full of influence. Is following Jesus worth giving up the American dream? Would you be willing to count that kind of cost? We do not hear the scribe's response. And I think that's on purpose. Because that question needs to come to bear on each one of us. Am I like the scribe? Would I be willing to give up influence and power and notoriety and a place in my culture for the sake of following Jesus? Would I be willing to do those things? That's the first 
would-be disciple. The second would-be disciple asked Jesus if he could just go bury his father first. That seems like a reasonable question. (laughs) But Jesus gives what seems like a really harsh response. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Surely, Jesus is not calling on this person to dishonor their father and mother, right? As we've seen all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen in Matthew chapter 8 in the first four verses, he tells that leper, go present yourself to the priest as the law requires. He's not not destroying the law at all. So Jesus isn't calling on this person to break one of the Ten Commandments. So what does this response mean? It means that there is no human tradition or connection that supersedes our allegiance to Christ. No matter what the people of the world say, no matter what people around us, even if they're closest to us, whatever counsel they might give, if it is contrary to the authority of Christ, we must follow Christ rather than man. When we follow Jesus, we recognize that his authority transcends the other authorities in our lives. There's only room for one person on the throne. Now, as we look at these last three stories, we'll notice that the scope gets much bigger. Matthew is putting these events back to back for a specific purpose. So look with me in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Fifth point, we see here in the story that Jesus has authority over the natural world. Jesus has authority over the natural world. I love this story. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. There's so much we could talk about here, but there's a couple of things we need to highlight. First, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat. And a great storm, it says, arose. A great storm. Now remember, many of these disciples, before they became followers of Jesus, were fishermen by trade. And although we recognize that there are a lot of places to fish, a lot of these towns are on the bay of the Sea of Galilee. So this very water, this this very sea is the place where most of these disciples were very comfortable. They had been out on that water their whole lives. So for a great storm to arise in such a way that they were convinced they were going to die, you can be sure this was a terrifying storm. And so they cry out to a sleeping Jesus. I mean, he's just out in the boat as this storm rages on. And they call out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. So don't miss not just the historical reality that's going on here. Don't miss Don't miss the story behind the story. Chaos and death surrounds the disciples. They're helpless. They're hopeless. Because Jesus is down, asleep. But when Jesus rises, he conquers the chaos with a word, bringing order back to the world. And instead of a great storm, there is a great calm. 
Jesus' authority over the natural world is apparent. And it caused the disciples to marvel, what sort of man is this? We'll come back to that at the end. Let's keep going. Not only does Jesus, Jesus have authority over the natural world, he has authority over even greater things. Look at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So number six, we see in this text, Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. So it's not just creation that Jesus can rule over with a word. It's the supernatural, the spiritual world. These fierce, terrifying, powerful, demon-possessed men caused great disruption among the people of the Gadarenes. They were not allowing anyone to pass through that place. But what happens when Jesus shows up? His authority and their leash becomes incredibly clear. They cry out to the Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? These demons know exactly who Jesus is and exactly what kind of authority Jesus has. So they beg him to send them into some pigs and Jesus allows it. He says, go, and they go. The pigs immediately rush to their deaths. And that just shows us that the desire of these demons was to bring death and destruction. The spirits of the supernatural realm are no match for the person and word of Christ. Their relative freedom and power over people among the Gadarenes was nothing in comparison when the Son of God showed up. The Gadarenes asked Jesus to leave, which brings us to the climax of the passage this morning. Let's read chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Jesus has authority up close. He has authority far away. He has authority in abundance. 
He has authority over every human tradition. He has authority over creation. He has authority over the supernatural, which all leads to this climactic point in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 9. Jesus has the authority of God. He has the authority of God. The Lord Jesus, seeing the faith of the one coming to be healed, does something remarkable in this passage. He says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now that paralytic did not come to have his sins forgiven. He came to have his body healed. Right? He came to have his physical brokenness restored. But he came before the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, and got something way, way, way better. He got his sins forgiven. And the scribes witnessing this were indignant. They were frustrated. They were upset. This man is blaspheming. Now, why would they say that? Because only God can forgive sins. Everyone knows this. And Jesus perceives this and responds, what's easier to say? That his sins are forgiven or for him to rise and get up and walk? So Jesus then confirms his authority to forgive sins by healing the paralytic on the spot. And we've seen this already, haven't we? And we've seen some, some previews and some shadows and some types, even in the things that we've already read this morning. That reference to Isaiah 53 tells of a suffering servant who would be exalted and make many righteous and bear their sins. The calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee should have reminded the disciples and us as the readers of God's word of the God who told Job that it is he who controls the seas. Or of the psalmist who wrote that it is God and his voice that stills the roaring waters and the waves. The sending of the demons into the pigs should remind us of the God who keeps Satan himself on a leash in the book of Job. In other words, all these signs are pointing to one glorious truth. The Son of Man is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And in Christ, you and I are under that universal, omnipotent, unstoppable, generous, abundant, glorious authority. Because he has taken away our sins. Jesus' authority is exercised in our lives for our everlasting good. So when he seems close or far, his loving authority is there, working. When heaven and earth seem to be in turmoil and in chaos in our lives, his authority is there, working. The fact is, for those of us who are outside of the loving rule of Christ, the authority of Jesus should bring terror to us. I mean, that's the response, right? Matthew chapter 9, verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God. If, if I'm not in Christ then the fact that Jesus has authority over heaven and earth, that he has the authority of God because he is God in the flesh, that should bring me terror. Because I'm not in step with his rule. I'm not in step with his reign. I'm not in step with his kingdom. But for those of us in Christ, 
the authority of Jesus is great comfort. It's great comfort. Because if I'm a citizen of his kingdom, if I'm a son or a daughter in his family, then it means that I can trust that everything happening in my life, everything good and bad and in between, are, is, is coming to me through the authority of Jesus, who is always for my good. So it gives me something to hold on to when things are rough, when that storm is raging. I have something to hold on to to remind myself this is not an accident. This is not random. This is not because God is upset with me. This is not because God hates me. It is, it is precisely because God loves me and is ruling and reigning over me and is doing something in this right here, right now for my good. I can only believe these things if I really believe that Jesus has the authority of God, which means that Jesus is God. So my prayer is that you and I would surrender once again to the authority of Christ, the authority of God, and respond like Peter's mother-in-law with faithful, obedient service, grateful for what God has done and excited for what God has empowered us to do for his name and for his glory. So let me pray for us. Oh God in heaven, we confess that the Lord Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The earth is his footstool. The heavens above us declare his glory. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And if it wasn't for the people of God worshiping him in the spirit and in truth, the rocks would cry out, proclaiming the glory of his authority, his beauty, his holiness, his goodness. So God, thank you. Thank you. By your providential hand, you have brought us together to make much of Christ. You've brought us together to hear and see the goodness of the authority of God seen most clearly in the authority of Christ. Lord, we know that you are able to do whatever it is that you desire. And we confess that as King of Kings, you have the right to do whatever you want with us. So God, help us to count the cost, to trust that your will and your ways are for our eternal good and that anything this world has to offer pales in comparison. Our hearts long for things that ultimately destroy us. So God, change our hearts. Our minds think after things that lead us to destruction. So Lord, renew our minds. Lord, our hands look for things to do that bring you dishonor. So grab us by our hands. Bring us closer to you by your healing touch. Conform us into your image from one degree of glory to the next so that we might rise up and serve you in faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.